Adrian Rogers once said, we ought to be living as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back this afternoon. In other words, there should be a sense of imminence, immediacy, certainly uh, an expectancy, if not urgency, for the return of Christ, because not only do we not know the day or the hour of his return, but so much of what he said would be signs of his second coming have uh, either already happened or are happening now, as we've seen all the way through this book of Revelation that we've been studying for the better part of a year now. And more than anything, we know with certainty that Jesus is returning soon, well, because that's exactly what he told John to tell us, as we'll see as we complete our journey through this book today. And it's not just, listen, um, it's not just an intellectual assent, an understanding of the information in this book that prepares us for his return. It's getting our house in order. It's preparing ourselves and others for the day when Jesus comes back for his church. And we do that by making disciples and reaching the lost with a very real sense of immediacy. Why? Because he's on his way. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know he's preparing for his return, as he says over and over and over again, even in this final chapter of Revelation, I am coming soon. Well, listen, you can't help other people be prepared for the return of Christ if you aren't prepared, which means getting your own house in order first, right? When, when someone is coming over to your home, what do you do before they get there? You sit down in front of the TV and, and kick back with a drink and watch a movie? No. No, you run through the house like a madman, picking up and straightening up and cleaning up, maybe preparing a meal. You spend time and energy and effort getting your house in order in anticipation of the arrival of your guests because you know they're on the way. When we have church on Sunday, there's a whole group of people who come here before you get here to prepare to get this place ready before you ever show up. And so we prepare the music and the media and the sound and lights and coffee and all the rooms and the rest of the buildings. In other words, we get our house in order in anticipation of your arrival because we know you're on the way. What does the bride do the morning of her wedding? She spends the entire morning getting ready, preparing her hair and makeup and dress, preparing herself for the arrival of the groom because she knows he's on the way while all of the other people prepare the venue for the event, the flowers and photographers and food and decorations and on and on. They get the house in order for the wedding because the groom is on the way. Okay, being prepared for the imminent return of Christ isn't just about understanding the prophecies in this book. Right? It's, it's not about perfectly deciphering all of the metaphor and fitting all of the imagery neatly into your theological position on eschatology. No, it's heeding the message, the clear and consistent message of Christ throughout the book, the message that Jesus is coming back soon, so it's time to get your house in order because he's on the way. You know, if you actually read, uh, you read through it in the ancient Greek, the original language, when he says, I'm coming back soon, it means suddenly. We don't know. It's just going to happen suddenly like a thief in the night. It's the clear and consistent theme of the entire book, which Jesus puts an exclamation point on in this final chapter. And what, uh, what does that mean to get your house in order? Well, first of all, it means actually knowing Jesus, right? Not knowing about him, 
but actually knowing him. Okay? It, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church, sang in the choir, gave in every offering, or even lived a good life. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is your only way to get to God. When you stand before him after this life has run its course, he isn't going to ask you which church you attended or how many people you prayed for or how many wonderful things you did in your lifetime because if you never actually knew him, none of that matters. Your religious upbringing is of zero value to your eternity if you do not know Jesus Christ. So getting your house in order, first of all, means knowing him. Secondly, it's sounding the alarm to everyone around you that he is on the way. It's like when house guests are on the way, you tell everyone else in the house, get up, clean up your room, put your stuff away, help with the meal, the preparations, whatever, because our guest is on the way. It's time to get the house in order. It's time to prepare. We need to get ready because he'll be here soon. But the thing is, you won't do that You won't do that if you don't care all that much about the person who's coming. The reason you bother to get your house in order for those guests is because you care about them. The reason we bother to do everything that we do on Sundays to prepare for your arrival here is because we care about you. The reason the bride bothers to spend all the effort and time preparing for the wedding is because of her passionate love for the groom who is coming to marry her. It's because of how much she cares about him. But look, if you didn't care all that much, you wouldn't bother all that much. And honestly, it makes me wonder, as casual as we can be about the return of Christ, as unconcerned about getting our house in order before he comes as we seem to be sometimes, it makes me wonder, how much do we actually care? And the reason that matters so much is because being prepared for his return doesn't just affect you personally. It affects all the people around you, you see, because what he's asking you to do in order to prepare for his imminent return is not something you will ever do if you're not 100% sold out, all in, passionately in love with Jesus. Because of what's required for you to prepare for his return, which again is what this book of Revelation is all about. So we're going to do something a little different today. Because this final chapter is basically a reminder from Jesus of what is coming, of what what Jesus has been warning and promising John throughout the entire book. It's also a stark reminder of why it matters, as Jesus keeps saying over and over again, I am coming soon. And so likewise, this final Revelation sermon is going to be a compilation. It's a look back. We're going to walk back through some of what's been taught throughout the book from several of the previous sermons in this series as a reminder of why it matters to get our house in order because of the message of Christ throughout the book that he is coming soon. So let's turn there together to Revelation 22 and read this final chapter. We'll start with the first seven verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That's the angel uh, talking to John. If you have a red letter Bible, uh, which mine isn't, but if you do, you'll see the next sentence in red letters. This is Jesus now speaking right after the angel. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. As we saw throughout the last chapter, uh, John describes the magnificent city that God's people will live in together with him for the eternal age to come. And the first five verses of this chapter continue that description with some added detail. And so along with Genesis, these last two chapters uh, bookend the Bible. The first two or three chapters of Genesis, the last two of Revelation, bookend the entire Bible. More specifically, the story of mankind as we see the people of God dwelling in a perfect creation amidst the tree of life in the beginning of the Bible, and then here at the end of the Bible, all of that and then some is restored. In Genesis 2.9, the tree of life is planted in the middle of the garden, and we know from uh, Genesis 3.22, to eat of its fruit was to live forever, and yet because of Adam's sin, those first humans were banished from paradise to work the ground, which was then cursed with thorns and thistles, as we see in Genesis 3. Uh, 17 and 18. Fast forward to the end of the story here in Revelation 22, and we find humanity back in a perfect world. The curse has been removed, and we are once again able to eat from the tree of life that bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding a fresh crop month by month, so it's never ending. And we're also once again able to see the very face of God, according to verse 4 that we just read, much like Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.8, as God once walked among them in Eden before sin entered the world. And the healing leaves of the tree are a sign of the complete uh, absence of physical and spiritual want. As John says, no longer will there be anything accursed. In fact, uh, that word healing in verse 2 is the Greek word uh, therapia. It's where we get our English word uh, therapeutic from. It, it means he, uh, health giving. In other words, we won't have to go to the tree of life for healing in the sense that there's going to be sickness or injury uh, that requires healing. It's the idea that there is this constant state of health and life in this new world for all who live there, a continual state of abundance and perfection. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? We, and we will bear his name on our foreheads, an eternal sign that we belong to and reflect God himself. And then the angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. What must soon take place. And then almost as if to make sure John was paying attention to what the angel just said, Jesus says to John, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, everything you're seeing here, John, all of the blessings and health and eternal life and peace and prosperity, all of it will belong in the future to those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book, to those who obey my word today. So write this down, John, so you won't ever forget it and so that you can tell everyone you meet because just like the angel just said, I am coming soon. Worthy of note here is the fact that the angel says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show who? His servants. What must soon take place? It's what we've seen from the beginning of Revelation. The whole book is addressed to the church. Well, okay, don't lost people in this world need to hear it too? Of course they do. 
So why is he directing all of this to us, to his church? Because look, the only way that lost people are going to hear the message is through us. But, but, but look, if we don't care enough about the fact that Jesus is coming back soon, if we don't care enough to get our own house in order first, then how will they ever know? How will they ever care? Right? We, we can't expect lost people to be concerned with the return of Christ if his own people aren't concerned with the return of Christ. And so this book of prophecy from one end to the other is full of promises for the church, yes, but it's also full of warnings to the church to get our own house in order first. Because as he said all the way back in chapter 3, so much of the church has become lukewarm. You remember? Unconcerned about the return of Christ. I know your works. You're neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Listen, those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear what he's saying? Revelation three fifteen through 22. You may remember when we studied this back in chapter 3. Laodicea, where this church was located, lay in Fergie's Lycus Valley on the banks of the Lycus River. It was 11 miles west of Colossae and six miles south of Heropolis. And it was a city of great wealth and great resources, a commercial center that was thriving, particularly in the medical and textile industries. In fact, in A.D. 60, there was a massive earthquake there, and yet the city uh, declined all imperial disaster relief from the Roman government because they were so self-sufficient. They were so prepared materially, they didn't need help from the outside, uh, from the, the big city or anyone from outside their own city for almost anything. And so as a result, the city did not see itself as poor, blind, and naked, and neither did the church. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There's also evidence of a strong Jewish presence in Laodicea and equally strong evidence that they had blended the Greek pagan culture, the popular culture of their day, into their own Jewish religious culture in many respects. In fact, by the third century, uh, there were illustrations on their coins that mixed together Jewish and pagan versions of the flood stories, just as one example. The church, the Christian church, was beginning to accept the same practices and temptations, and so they too were very proud of their culture, their church culture. And their blending of religious beliefs to be at peace with everyone around them. And as a result of that cooperation, that consonance with the pagan culture around them, they too had become quite proud of their self-sufficiency, except for one very important resource that was lacking. Do you remember what it was? It was the quality of their water. And everyone there knew it. In fact, Laodicea was famous for its bad water. We have ancient records that tell us it was full of sediment. Excavations of the city's terracotta pipes have revealed that thick lime deposits, in addition to the, the heavy lime deposits on the waterfall cliff that was just opposite the city, which was a constant reminder to its residents of the heavy contamination in the water supply. 
And the Lycus River that sat next to it was no better. Its waters were muddy and completely undrinkable. So the city built this system of aqueducts that piped water in from two other cities. About six miles to the north was the city of Heropolis, which had, and by the way, still has today, these wonderful hot springs full of minerals that bubbled up from the ground, which were used therapeutically, like a hot tub. And so one set of aqueducts piped the hot water in from Heropolis, except that by the time the water traveled the five miles to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm at that point. And so the therapeutic benefit of the water being hot was lost. And because it was so rich in minerals, it made people sick when they tried to drink it. And then about 11 miles away to the southeast was the town of Colossae, which was famous for the, the cold alpine streams that flowed down into it from the nearby snow-capped Mount Cadmus. And the water was really wonderful there for drinking. And so Laodicea had a set of aqueducts that piped in this very cold water from Colossae, except that after traveling 11 miles through the Turkish heat, the cold water was lukewarm by the time it reached Laodicea. And so Laodicea had become famous for its lukewarm water, which was useless for drinking and useless for therapeutic purposes. And this is what uh, Jesus was comparing the church to. He was saying, I wish you were either hot or cold, because either one of those options would be wonderful and useful. But because you're lukewarm, just like your water, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit in verse 16 is far too polite because the actual word in the ancient Greek, emeo, means to vomit. So Jesus is literally saying here, if you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth, just like your water makes people vomit when they try to drink it. Don't forget, he's talking to people in the church. People who profess to be Christians, and of course, I grew up in church learning about lukewarm Christians, we called them, right? How, uh, do you know that phrase, even that idea, lukewarm Christian, isn't even in the Bible? That's a title that we've made up based on this passage of Scripture. And so we refer to those people Jesus is describing as lukewarm Christians, but that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say they were Christians at all. No, in fact, he went on to say that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Blind means spiritually lost. These are people who profess to be Christians in the church that Jesus says he's going to vomit out of his mouth. You see, we have interpreted the cold people Jesus was describing as the non-believers and the hot people being the committed Christians with the lukewarm people being Christians who just weren't quite as committed as those who were hot or quite as lost as those who were cold. But that's not what Jesus was saying at all. And for that matter, nowhere else in all of Scripture does Jesus or anyone else describe a state of religious belief where you can exist somewhere between being lost and being found. Like in the middle, Luke, no. You're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. There is no in-between. Okay. We've either been transformed by the gospel or we haven't. But in our modern, comfortable Christian culture, we've created a whole new branch of Christianity, a whole new sect of believers called lukewarm Christians. It's just something we've made up. It's cultural Christianity, people who populate the church believing in Jesus while refusing to follow him. And so Jesus issues a warning. He says, get your house in order or I'll spit you out of my mouth and do it soon. He says here in chapter 22, because I'm coming soon. Aristotle, 
Although not a Christian spoke a great truth when he said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies for the hardest victory is over self. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 13. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And again, in this section of Scripture, the angel's talking to John, or John is speaking, and then Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. That's him talking, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's interesting that John, Jesus' favorite, the disciple who knew him the best, the one closest to Christ, on two separate occasions now falls before an angel and tries to worship him. After such depth of relationship with Christ himself, and after all of the supernatural revelation and visions and hearing directly from Jesus through it all, it is striking how easily John falls away in error. Listen, if the great apostle John can be so wrong in his understanding and practice in following Christ and in how he worships and models the life of the believer in an instant, how hard do you think it is for us to be in error at times in our own lives as well? Listen, just because someone has supernatural visions and revelations from Jesus himself does not make them correct in their doctrine or teaching or practice 100% of the time. We have to be very careful that we don't allow manifestations of the Spirit through others, even supernatural ones, to become the object of our worship. It's exactly what John was doing here, and he's sternly rebuked for it. Okay, The object of our worship should only and always be Jesus. And then the angel says, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Seems like a strange thing to say until you pair it with the sentence just before it. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. In other words, Jesus is coming in an instant and when he does, it will be too late for those who have put off trusting in and following him. Why? For the time is near. At that point, when he comes, it will be too late for people to change. Many will want to. It'll be too late. The evildoer will remain evil. The filthy will remain filthy while the righteous will forever be righteous and the holy will remain holy. So be careful what you follow now because the time is near. And then almost as if to make sure John was paying attention to what the angel just said, Jesus says to John, behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. You see, when that day comes, when Jesus uh, is going to assert his full authority over this earth and everyone left in it, and we talked about this back in chapter 13, where the Antichrist challenged the authority of God and convinced others to do the same by performing supernatural works in their presence as the basis for his own truth claims. And people bought it hook, line, and sinker. And of course, that's the difference 
between Christianity and all the other major religions. Our truth claims are not realized or based uh, on a religious system or through adherence to a strict set of religious rules or through a heightened awareness of one's own spirituality or even through the supernatural works of others. No, the truth claims of Christianity are realized through a person, Jesus Christ. Which means whatever truth there is in Christianity is found in and only in Jesus Christ, who not only claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, but he demonstrated it over and over again in his life on earth and in the prophecies to be fulfilled in this book of Revelation. So he warns us in chapter 13, don't be self-deceived like the Antichrist is, like, like John was before this angel, and like so many are today, because we all want Jesus. We just want him on our own terms. We have no problem with his love in our lives, his strength in our lives, his peace in our lives, his joy in our lives, his healing in our lives, his freedom in our lives. It's his authority in our lives that rubs us the wrong way because his authority in our lives gets in the way of us doing all the things that look good and sound good to us, even some things that seem very spiritual. And so he says to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, stick to my word, John. Why? Because the time is near. I am coming soon. Submit to my authority now while you still have the choice. Because once I come, you won't get to choose anymore. At that point, the evildoer will remain evil. The filthy will remain filthy. While the righteous will be forever righteous. And the holy will remain holy. And of course, submitting your life to the authority of Christ is one of the hardest things that most of us will ever do because it means swallowing your pride, denying yourself, giving up your own dreams when they don't line up with his plans. Submitting your life to God's authority means accepting the authority of his word over your life, all of it, even the parts of it you don't like. It means loving like he loved, even when you don't feel like it. It means giving like he gave, even when you don't think you should have to. It means forgiving like he forgave even though you don't want to. It means putting others before yourself even when they don't deserve it. It means serving his purposes in your life instead of your own. Submitting your life to God's authority means giving him every ounce of yourself unreservedly. And really it all boils down to what we talked about back in chapter 14. Me or Jesus. Who are you ultimately going to follow? Me or Jesus, because look, the answer to that one simple question informs every other decision you'll ever make for the rest of your life. Who will be the number one priority in my life, me or Jesus, right? Who, who will get what he wants when it's the opposite of what the other wants, me or Jesus? Who gets to decide how I'll treat other people today, me or Jesus? Who determines how much I give of my time, my money, my abilities, me or Jesus? Who gets the credit when I accomplish something noteworthy, me or Jesus? Who am I going to live my life for today, me or Jesus? You see, every decision you make, every day of your life is ultimately a product of that one choice, me or Jesus. And according to Jesus, now is the time to make that decision once and for all because the time is near as he keeps repeating to John in this final chapter of Revelation. I am coming soon. And once he's here, for those who have put that decision off, for those who 
chose themselves over Jesus, it will be too late. Thomas Carlyle once said, Of all acts of man, repentance is the most divine. The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. Did you get that? The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none, to be unaware of your own faults. Let's finish the story, verse 14 to the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For the churches. I'm the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. In this final bit of text in the book, we find the final consummation of the kingdom of God on earth, where the faithful are included and the faithless eternally excluded. When it says outside the gates will be uh, the dogs, they're not talking about fluffy. People ask me if their dog's going to end up in heaven. He's going to be outside the gate. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Those who wash their robes have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's a stark picture of the stark contrast of what eternity looks like for those who receive Christ. Those who take the water of life without price compared to those who reject him. Those who love and practice falsehood. And just to be clear, uh, there won't be throngs of evil people living just outside the gates of the new Jerusalem on earth for eternity. This is imagery for those who are excluded from the kingdom because of their rejection of the truth. And so instead of living within the gates of God's kingdom, they must dwell behind the gates of another kingdom, the gates of hell, which again, to be clear, is a result of their own rejection of Jesus Christ. Because for God's part, the spirit and the bride say, come, Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God's invitation is for everyone. And make no mistake, the invitation is not only all-inclusive for those who accept Christ, but it is also imminent. It is urgent. Why? Because as Jesus reminds John again, just to make sure he's listening to what the angel has said, Jesus echoes the message one more time. Surely I am coming soon. So let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who hears say come. The invitation is for everyone. Let the one who hears say come. But you understand they can't unless they hear. Because as we've talked about throughout this book, lost people don't know they're lost. And how will they know if we don't tell them? 
This is where we come in because we have power as the church united against the power of the gates of hell, which we talked about back in chapter 7, the necessity of the church being unified because the one thing Satan cannot stand against in this world is a unified church. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus replied on this rock, on this profession of faith in Christ, on this gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. If you read the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? In the ancient Greek, the literal rendering of that phrase is the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. You'll remember that if you were here back in chapter 7. It's actually a very significant difference. It couldn't be any more different because when you read it the way most English translations have it, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It sounds like Jesus was saying no matter what the enemy comes at you with, he will not prevail against you. But when you read it in the original Greek, it's the other way around. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. See, Jesus was not saying we will be able to withstand the enemy. No, he was saying the enemy will not be able to withstand us. Because his will for the church is to be on the offensive, not huddled together in fear, hoping we can survive the attacks of the enemy. It's the other way around. The enemy is supposed to be running from us, unable to withstand the onslaught of Christians who are relentlessly taking ground back from him and tearing down his strongholds and snatching lost people from the fires of hell before it's too late. Jesus was saying, don't wait for the fight to come to you. You take the fight right up to the gates of hell. And no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what it costs, no matter who you have to fight for, no matter how beat up or bloodied you may be, storm the gates of hell because there's no power in hell that can withstand the power of the church. It makes the very next verse, the very next thing Jesus says, make a whole lot more sense. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Can you see the difference? It's an offensive battle strategy against our enemy, not a defensive one. You understand, we're not spectators in the kingdom of God. We're soldiers in his army, and the fight is before us now, today because we're not promised tomorrow. What we are promised from one end of this book to the other are these words of Christ over and over and over again. I am coming soon. In fact, it's how this revelation begins and ends. The very first chapter, do you remember? Verses one through three. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. In other words, I'm coming soon. And then his very last words in the book, chapter 22, verse 20, surely... I'm coming soon. In the sermon back in chapter 6, I quoted Jonathan Edwards, who said, the, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, 
And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. You see, whether you experience his blessing or his wrath upon his return is for many the difference between whether or not they ever hear the truth. But how will they hear if we don't tell them? I'm coming soon. Whether or not we tell them all boils down to what we value the most. Me or Jesus. The time to make that decision is now. Because I am coming soon. Which means the days of being lukewarm are over. The curtain is closing on this present age and people are dying and going to hell because for too long all we've had to offer them is a lukewarm gospel that promises nothing and transforms no one. There's no more time to waste. Just look around you. Just look at the state of this world today. Look at the state of much of the church today. Look at the state of your own heart today. It's time to get our house in order. Because surely, I am coming soon. Let's pray.